we need to change something so that we can have these rich structures of practices and meaning. Right. But hopefully not, that doesn't mean all going back to church. <laughs> okay, so you, you will not be returning either. <laughs> all right, what's up, everybody? This is Other Life. I am Justin Murphy. I just wanted to let you know that I write a free newsletter to thousands of people every week. It's where I publish my best work, I share events that you can come to, and much more. We have an insane private community around the newsletter, and it's free. Go check it out. Just go to otherlife.co. That's otherlife.co. When you subscribe, I'm going to send you a folder of PDFs that contain all of my personal highlights from a bunch of my favorite books that I've read over the years. So you'll get a million insights after just a few minutes of browsing these PDFs, really. They're really special to me, and I just figured I'd share them with you all. So that's otherlife.co, otherlife.co. All right, so Ellie and Joe, I first found you guys on Twitter through one of your tweets, Ellie, and I thought it'd be fun to maybe start this interview with uh, the tweet itself. So you you once wrote, it's funny how EAs, meaning effective altruists, fear the paperclip maximizer, dot, 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 and yet they act like paperclip maximizers themselves. Let's start by explaining this. Why don't you unpack this? Uh, I find that the effective altruist kind of click is... Uh, interesting in many ways, but also uh, dubious in many ways. And so there's not, I feel like I don't see too many EA disrespecters out there. So when I do, I, I become <laughs> very interested. Um, Ellie, why don't you start and unpack that tweet and uh, kind of uh, uh, kind of unpack for us how, how you think about effective altruism? Yeah, yeah, sure. Um, so first of all, I'll start by saying that um, effective altruism, they have my respect just because they try so hard to do good. Um, they're like very committed to it. So yeah, I feel like now that I've said that, you know, like good for you. And now I've kind of fallen to the respect. Yeah. Yeah. Now I can take the heavy artillery. Um, <laughs> yeah, so uh, about that tweet. So obviously the paperclip maximizer is the, uh, I, I, also with Moloch, right? The total uh, big enemies of effective altruism and I think I actually like tweeted that behind mainly the the problem with that is that they think that there is a very you know clear concrete and easily magnifiable idea of what's good right what's beautiful like what is worth optimizing for and that is essentially the whole definition of the paperclip maximizer like it was never about paperclips right it was always about like finding one metric um in this case it's like paperclips but it also could be um you know like saving children in Africa and then we build this like algorithm that in order to like save the children in Africa, you know, like kills everything else. Right. Um, and so it was, yeah, about collapsing, you know, reducing everything that's beautiful, that's important and meaningful about life into this kind of like little stupid metric that sounds sane like. And then that's kind of like what gets us into it. But it essentially leaves out all the rest. And yeah. It's, we have one friend, actually, that we'll, we're not going to dox, but he's, an, <laughs> he's a, an ex-EA, and he had like a really good point that he said that people become that which they fear most. So if you fear the paperclip maximizer, then, you know, somehow, somewhat, you end up becoming that. It's kind of like this like very Nietzsche thing. Like if right. you look too long at the abyss, you know, become that, so... I love it. I love yeah. it. Okay, great. And, uh, you know, for people listening or watching, this is for you too. This is not just some kind of uh, superficial hot take. This is something you two are both very interested in. And you've both been studying these things for a while and, and, you're, and you're working on this uh, quite seriously. So let's go back a little bit. And I'd love to learn from you, Joe. You know, what What did you learn from Charles Taylor? <laughs> <laughs> sure. Yeah. So um, one of my favorite papers is Charles Taylor's What is Human Agency? I think it's 1977. 
And this is a takedown of utilitarianism. Um, and uh, it's also an alternate theory. Uh, Taylor works out this theory of how we make choices that involves um, values, or, or uh, he calls them strongly evaluative terms. So uh, is something noble? Is something beautiful? Is something just? Is something uh, exciting? Is something and so on. Like, so that we have these different kinds of evaluators and we, we learn them. We, we maybe admire somebody. They're making decisions based on what's just or making decisions what's beautiful. We think, oh, we should use that one too. Um, and they're kind of contagious and we have kind of a collection of evaluative terminology that we use and we, 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 we update this collection. And this is just like a much better description for human agency and a much better description of, um, of how to operate. And it, it gets us out of this paperclip problem. And that actually maps pretty well onto how the EAs actually think and operate, right? Like they have their own little fashions, right? It's like they want, it to, they want to pretend that it's this purely rational function. But in fact, they have their memes and their fashions and they all kind of hype into certain memes because everyone else is – because all of the other EAs are doing it, right? And that actually sounds better described by what you were just saying in the Charles Taylor model. That's right. Yeah, they're, 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 they are actually human beings still, uh, <laughs> but they're pretending to be spreadsheets, right? And they're pretending to each other to be spreadsheets. And this is what kind of creates the, the burnout and the exhaustion and also the kind of narrow-mindedness that you see is that the necessity to, while actually making decisions the way that humans make decisions, pretend constantly that you're, you know, optimizing for the great good. Right, right. So, Ellie, you were once a kind of tech optimist interested <laughs> in the, you know, the, the tech ubermensch, uh, but you, you changed your tune. And so I'm curious, you know, how, how do you part ways from the effective altruist, you know, worldview uh, if it's not effective altruism, if it's not utilitarianism, then what is it? Wow. <laughs> that's a big question, right? Like, that's what we're trying to develop. Um, and yeah, well, our our philosophy, like our theory, what we put at the center is meaning. Uh, I guess you could also, for like, you could say meaning, you could say values, you could say, you know, like that which is most beautiful or most sacred to you. And I think, I mean, obviously it parts ways because it takes into account that, you know, humans were not just these like soulless automatons that you need to be directed with, you know, the right incentives in order to do something, but actually like as people that, you know, we want to live like according to what is meaningful for us, we want to have beautiful lives. Um, yeah. And what I like about these, you know, these like no uh, cultural proposition that we're trying to spread is that kind of like speaking a bit to like this reactionary um, sentiment that is kind of like, oh, we've strayed so far away from virtue and, you know, that which is good is like, yeah, we have, right? <laughs> like and liberalism, at least this kind of long tail preference liberalism that is what, you know, the marketplace is functioning around um, does not really serve that which we truly want and that which, you know, would make our lives really beautiful and meaningful. However, instead of these like, okay, return to like super traditional uh, social norms, you know, like gender, uh, gender norms, for example, it's like, no, okay, let's try to find like what meaning really is, right? Like what is the thing that like really like lights you up? What is the spark? I think we were talking yesterday at this party and you said something like, uh, what is this hill that you want to die on? I don't know exactly how you put it. <laughs> yeah. Um, but you said like, it's not about this kind of like super big moment, but it's kind of like sometimes you have like a small moment, even it's like a small moment that, you know, lights you up and like that, that's the hill that I want to die on. And for me, like this world that I want is 
everyone has, you know, everyone is able to like have this heal, right? Kind of like this moment where like, oh my God, you know, like we could have this thing, like the world could be much more beautiful. Right. So kind of like get that feeling behind and that's a metric that we're optimizing for. Okay, fascinating. So it, both of you are clearly not against rationality or not against measuring things. It's, yeah. it's no kind of naive rejection of mm -hmm. quantification or, or rationality, but it sounds like where you're going, both of you in your own way perhaps is, it's almost as if the, each person's foundation for what is most valuable, their kind of core value system is going to be kind of irreducibly uh, unique, irreduci irreducibly singular and unique. And there's not really a homogenous way for anyone to kind of rank order other people's ultimate core structuring values. Mm -hmm. And it sounds like what you, what you, what you both are saying in different registers, you through the Charles Taylor and, and you Ellie through the, through your own register is it's kind of like, the main thing is that everyone should find their own core, you know, sense of meaning, whatever that looks like. And, and there's not a kind of external rational way to tell someone what that should be, like some naive conception of, of utils or something mm -hmm. like that. But what's important is that everyone has it for themselves yeah. and it's authentic for themselves. And then around that, that's where the optimization takes place. That's where the, the rational um, maximization takes place. Is that, am I, am I on the right track or what would you yeah. add or subtract to that? Another way to put it or to put um, what we were just talking about that, which is very similar to what you just said, the, the effective altruists, they have this kind of one bit model of the good, like is somebody suffering or not? Right. That's like one of the there's a few different versions, but that's one version. So we want to reduce suffering. And all that matters to me about a person is whether they're suffering or not. Like that's the only thing that I see when I look at people. Are they suffering? Could they suffer less? Um, and uh, we have almost the opposite view that actually you have to know so much um, uh, that we have to be so intimately in touch with ourselves to know what's good for us. And then even if you're going to, you know, I don't know, throw a party for a friend, you really need to understand that friend and, and, and what's beautiful to them, what's meaningful to them to throw them a really good party. Mm -hmm. And so we're trying to figure out what this kind of doing the most good would look like um, if it was uh, about being intimately familiar instead of at this kind of crazy one-bit resolution that the alt effective altruists have. Okay, great. Yeah, it's crazy because, you know, for being, you know, in theory, such smart people, they have, like, such a one-dimensional view of reality, right? That there's essentially, like, we can collapse all of the complexity and, like, all these things that go around making society into these, like, very, like, yeah, narrow metric. And that's everything that matters, like that we have like all the information. And that's what, you know, it explains why um, there's no beauty in the movement, you know, there's no fun in the movement. Because um, these things, you know, and it's not just that there's none of that, is that they're like, like, actively downgraded. I think Peter Singer, he was also saying like, yeah, unless we solve hunger in Africa, like no one should be donating to museums or the opera or so on. Or eating ice cream. <laughs> yeah. If you read uh, Michael Nielsen's critique of EA, yeah. he's like, he's like, you can eat ice cream if it helps you serve, you know, make more bed nets and malaria yeah. because you have a little more stamina. Yeah. It was, or, it was awful. You should have children because, you know, the reason to have children is not because, you know, we're kind of like human beings and that's like a beautiful thing to do, but rather because, you know, maybe your children will be able to do more good in the world, right? right. Um, so, yeah, it's completely, you know, instrumentalizing and, yeah. How should people find what is most beautiful? Mm. That's a very good question. Um, we have a variety of techniques. So this is where our movement gets really practical. 
Um, we have an interview method um, where I would ask you uh, for a story of a meaningful experience with a certain context. So I'd say like, tell me about a time with your buddies that was really meaningful, or since you've been doing this, this style of work, since you left academia, what's one of the most meaningful experiences you've had? And then I would decode that. There's a, a way of listening to it. I ask you what you're paying attention to when you're noticing how meaningful it is. And this lets me write out a kind of specification for that particular source of meaning of yours. Um, so that's one method we have. We also have like software for getting mm -hmm. at it. Really? Tell us more about it. Uh, the software, uh, one, one piece of software we have starts with your emotions. So um, if you're feeling, uh, e each emotion gets turned into a kind of a question that points at a source of meaning. So if you're angry, that might mean that something is blocked that's meaningful to you. If you're scared, that might mean something's threatened. If you're sad, it might mean that you've lost something that's meaningful to you or so on. So you take the, you, first you ask them what they're feeling and then based on what they're feeling, you ask, okay, well, what, is there a way of living that you've lost mm. and that's why you're sad? And then you listen to that way of living, uh, ask more questions about it. Okay. And, yeah. Now, wouldn't the effective altruists just chime in here and they would say, oh, okay, so this is just a novel technique for teaching people how to optimize their utility, right? <laughs> I, I mean, I think uh, you, you can, if you, so the problem comes with identifying utility with either non-suffering or happiness or preference satisfaction. Mm. So those are three types of utilitarianism, like uh, preference utilitarianism, hedonic utilitarianism, sure. and those are all problematic. Um, uh, I, I don't mean to say that there isn't a kind of consequentialist ethics that makes sense, but it's one, I think, that requires, um, like I was saying, much more intimacy Right. Um, to to figure out whether you're you're doing good or not. Okay, that that's some that's some valuable nuance. So it's it sounds it sounds like the message that you two are trying to spread is uh, potentially conformable with some uh, more sophisticated uh, conception of of rationalism or utilitarianism, but the the social formation that is known as effective altruism or this particular kind of application or instantiation of utilitarianism is. Uh, misguided and 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 fundamentally um, wrong for certain reasons that aren't necessarily about yeah utilitarianism per se. It's more about the this particular social formation is biased or confused about certain things. It's certainly mm -hmm. what we do is closer to virtue ethics than utilitarianism, mm -hmm. um, but I don't actually think that there's so much of a conflict. Uh, I don't know Derek, uh, Derek Parfit and uh, Amartya Sen have both written eloquently about how virtue ethics could. Virtue ethics approaches can be unified with consequentialist approaches. Got it. Stuff like that. Okay, so that, that's more of the, the, the tech you take. That makes sense. Um, so talk to me a little bit more about what you're, what you're doing and what you're building. Uh, Joe, people may or may not know that you were one of the early developers of Couchsurfing, the kind of pre-Airbnb uh, house sharing uh, platform, which I used quite a lot actually uh, back in the day. Um, and you, I believe, were focused on developing metrics for basically tracking and measuring, you know, the the value of people's experiences uh, in, in couch surfing. So, what did you learn in those early days in this kind of new peer to peer economy of things like house sharing when this stuff was kind of, you know, first taking off? Uh, what were some of the things you learned looking at those numbers? Uh, what were the big epiphanies? Oh yeah, I learned a lot. Um... So uh, I built uh, the, the, the metric that guided the organization. It was a nonprofit, so it wasn't about 
um, making the most money. It, it was about something else. And what we decided was it was about, um, we called it net orchestrated conviviality. So how much nice. meaningful time did people spend together because of couchsurfing where it, they wouldn't have spent that time if couchsurfing didn't exist. And, um, t and we wanted to figure out not just uh, how much time, but how much quality time. So, so we, one of the things we did is we looked at the reviews and we tried to detect automatically whether a review m was something really meaningful hmm. or whether it was just like, oh yeah, I stayed there. Right. Or that guy showed me a good time, but you know, whatever. But, it, but some of the reviews, they say something like, you know, this changed my life forever. I've never, you know, we, we'd have like Iraqis staying with Palestinians, Americans staying with Iraqis, like, you know, like people like change their politics deeply. Yeah, yeah. They, they introverts got like opened up. Conservative people realized that there was like you know much more love in the world. Than okay, they thought. so so it seems like the million dollar question though is how you integrate this with markets, right? Because and maybe Ellie, you want to chime in here because you know the the obvious problem is that markets seem to select for a certain kind of instrumental rationality where whether you want to or not, you kind of have to optimize for profits and you have to optimize for these you know more sinister metrics like time on website or whatever. That That's not because people are bad or evil, but it's just because markets ruthlessly select for those things. If you have an operation that doesn't optimize for those things, then you exit you exit the the meme pool and you're and you're out of business. So 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 the the challenge it would be it would seem and I'm sure you too are thinking hard about this is that there seems to be these very strong kind of evolutionary game theoretic pressures where optimizing for meaningful conviviality is just not viable on some level because of capitalism. So how do you get around that? Um, well, first of all, is that like people can't really point out the, to the type of change that they want unless they're able to like speak really about it. Mm. So right now, you know, we can say, oh, like markets are broken and, you know, like culture is broken, but we can't really tell why exactly, like what is the thing that kind of like really went wrong. And I think kind of like that's why the first part of the work that we're trying to do is to make people really like values or like meaning literate. literate. Um, and I think that also solves a big problem in in our culture that is like we often come up with these like big beautiful visions for how to change the world right mm. so we had like liberalism liberalism was actually like trying it you know very aligned with what we're saying you know like to free men so they can live you know their most beautiful life on their own terms and then we end up with you know current late state capitalism right mm. and with the state that america is right now um and i think that is or you know the whole kind of social justice diversity thing is that, yeah, like a lot of people are actually oppressed, right? And it, they, they deserve to have uh, a bigger, you know, like bigger voice, bigger place in culture. But unless you have, unless you're able to like really articulate that which is so precious around your vision, that's why you often end up with like such empty, like shallow policies, right? So you think that diversity is just kind of like checking these, you know, like empty checkbox list that, you know, actually like instrumentalizes all the people that you're trying to help. Or you think that just like liberalism is like, well, hey, like you're voting, right? Like, here you got it. Um, and I think that's why, yeah, the first part is just to get people really articulate about their sources of meaning. Um, I, oh, yeah. Yeah. I can say a little bit more about sort of fixing capitalism. So uh, we're always fixing capitalism, right? There's there's a lot of things that like bear markets do very poorly, right? We'd all be drug addicts, mm. but there's some laws like um, health healthcare is like you know uh, without things like uh, uh, w you know with, without different kinds of regulation or insurance structures, healthcare is really bad. The financial markets have all these auditing structures, all these insurance structures to keep them on the rails. So 
there's this long process of, you know, okay, markets do this thing really badly. Maybe there's some financial innovation that fixes it. Maybe there's some uh, regulation process that fixes it or whatever. Um, one thing that we haven't yet identified that markets do badly is this thing about meaning. Um, and I think what, one way to think about it, uh, the, the way I like to think about it is, so we, we have this, you know, economists talk about products and services, and the market is made of products and services. Another way to break it down is funnels, tubes, and spaces. Um, so uh, funnels and tubes are things that, a uh, funnel is like something that's goal-oriented, like getting everybody malaria bed nets or something. A tube would be something that helps you with a goal, like uh, taking a taxi, buying something on Amazon. And a space would be something that's like a container for something meaningful, like a festival, a church, a research lab, um, you know, anything that somebody is, is part of what makes somebody's life, uh, uh, you know, part of, part of what, something that's inherently valuable happens there, that, that happens inside the space rather than like it's just a, a means to get somewhere, right? And so I think if you break down the economy to funnels and tubes and spaces, there are spaces um, for sure, that, uh, you know, our businesses, um, but they are, the economy's not so good at them. And so once you make this breakdown, you can think, okay, well, do we subsidize spaces? Do we tax the other things? Um, can we measure spaces a different way? Do spaces need their own kinds of uh, success metrics? Do they spaces need their own funding structures? There's like a whole bunch of op options that open up yeah. for patching capitalism for these issues. And I, I think I think one of those will work out. Yeah, I think kind of like both these like framing of like spaces and sources of meaning and values kind of like works in the same way that at the beginning of like liberalism and modernity, we had this kind of like new idea of, you know, the individual like reason driven, you know, person utility maximizing. And that is actually what opened the door to, you know, reimagining democracy and markets and capitalism. So I do think that these kind of initial ideas play a much bigger role, even than the actual material conditions. Um, you know, this kind of like rhetoric that technology is what drives everything. Um, yeah, it's actually like, it's actually not. <laughs> like there's this other book, you know, that kind of like very directly proves that um, in the Industrial Revolution, actually like the first places where it really took off, that's this book by um, Deidre McCloskey, uh, the first places where it really took off was actually not the best geographically positioned or the ones that have like most resources, but the places where they had uh, book clubs and where people were talking about these ideas. Ah, oh, yeah, the, the bourgeois virtues. Yes. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, so I'm curious, what do you guys think about, like what is the correct vehicle for a small group of purposeful individuals such as yourselves or such as me and you know my community, what, what have you, to try to kind of uh, create an engine for this kind of thing, right? Like how do you see this vision uh, taking over, like through what kind of vehicles? Is it is it startups? Is it nonprofits? Is it some weird combination? You know, like starting from zero, how does a group of purposeful small uh, of individuals like kind of bootstrap this kind of thing into the world in a way that takes over? Yeah, I think it is a a weird combination. So tell us about it. <laughs> what does um, it look like? Yeah, so there's there's research aspects to what we do and sort of like policy kind of think tanky aspects to what we do, and that part is probably best done as a nonprofit. Mm -hmm. um, there's also kind of movement aspects, and that sort of works as a nonprofit, but there's also, I think, um, uh, community structures that are now maybe better thought of as startups. Like, I, I don't know, uh, I, I guess you probably think of your organization as a, as a startup. I suppose so, yeah. And it's a community startup. Obviously, yeah, not like a, a hockey stick, high growth yeah. tech startup, but um, 
Yeah, I do mostly see my operation as a business, just being realistic about it. Yeah. Yeah. So I think I think this is a mix of uh, maybe three different kinds of structures. One kind is this kind of community startup. One kind is a nonprofit that's more of a kind of brand holder and uh, banner and uh, can, can do research and policy advocacy and that kind of stuff. And the third would be some kind of platform uh, to connect uh, like meaning driven entrepreneurs and meaning driven kind of consumers. Uh, yeah. yeah. Okay. Okay. Fascinating. Um, Ellie, what, I, I was also curious what you learned from Charles Taylor. Uh, I think specifically <laughs> around this, this concept of social imaginary, something you talk a lot about. Yeah. What, what specifically did you take from Charles Taylor? Oh, wow. Um, yeah, first of all, like the concept of the imaginary, because we're not used to thinking about culture in these terms. So, so like, what is it exactly? Yeah. Uh, yeah. So when we're talking about culture, we mostly th- uh, think in terms of, you know, like maybe ideologies or, you know, like local cultures, right? Like their, their lore and folklore and so on. Um, and the imaginary is kind of like the meta structure that like holds all of these. And there's even, you know, there's different definitions of it. There's actually these other uh, sociologies, Gerard Bouchard, that has a definition that I like a bit better than Charles Taylor's. Um, because Charles Taylor's, uh, he says that the imaginary is only like the set of images and memes and like doesn't include any sort of theory. Um, but yeah, it's kind of, I guess in, in popular culture terms, it's the matrix, right? Mm. It's like that which creates culture. Right. It's like the invisible background. In it's way. invisible. It's Deleuze like the water for talks the about, fish. talks um, about yeah. what he calls the, the picture of thought. Mm-hmm. Um, and so, you know, he seems to s- kind of think that a lot of philosophers get in, get bogged down in these debates between, you know, like, you know, the found, you know, what, what's the real foundation? Is there a foundation or whatever? Totally. And he, and he seems to kind of suggest that it's even that is, uh, is a mistake. It's not about like some foundation or mm-hmm. superstructure or something like that. It, it's, it's, it's to even think at all. One already has certain, um, invisible presuppositions, a kind of image in one's mind yeah. of what thought even can be or, yeah. or what is possible, what it, what is possible for thought to look like. And that this kind of uninterrogate, uninterrogated kind of invisible, um, set of presuppositions that is the picture of thought actually has much more to, to, to do uh, and it has a more determining kind of influence on the conclusion someone makes and like almost all of the action is in the picture uh-huh. of thought rather than the, 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 the explicit text yeah, of the thought. Absolutely, absolutely. Um, yes, exactly what you say. And for me, but the thing that was like really useful was that, you know, obviously like we're at the point where like mostly everyone, no matter where you are at the political spectrum, is kind of like things are not okay culturally, right? And we need another alternative. But most of the, you know, most of the propositions or cultural propositions like still revolve in the same imaginary. So kind of like in the same, you know, like set of ideologies. I say that the imaginary is like that which, you know, holds, um, you know, like the ideologies. However, the reason why we don't talk about imaginary so much is because it kind of, it's like the paradigm, right? So there is like a different, you know, like modern imaginary than like a pre-modern or, you know, like post-modern, metamodern, however you want to call it. And um, what I found very frustrating about like the current cultural arena is that, yeah, most of the propositions were like still in the same imaginary, in the same like modern imaginary. And it's that's kind of like the same as, you know, like being back in the pre-modern one and thinking like, oh, yeah, I mean, you know, this is like a more progressive king. Like, should we vote that? Or like, that's a more conservative king. But actually, like, this just gets you kind of, you know, like going in the endless like wars and crusades thing. Right. When you actually like you don't need another king, even if it's more progressive, like right. you need like a completely different um, yeah. So like you, you, two are, you two are both kind of in adjacent somewhat to the, the whole like sense making slash like game B, 
you know, the Jordan Halls and the Schmuckenbergers yeah. and, and these and these folks. Um, but I think you also, uh, both of you kind of part ways from that in, in certain ways. So unpack that if you would. Like what what does this this uh, kind of so-called sense-making community, uh, what do they fundamentally get wrong? Uh, I'll start. <laughs> um, get ready. <laughs> uh, first of all, I, yeah, some of these people are my friends, so sure. I hope they don't get too offended. Sure, same, of course. Um one place I, I part ways is uh, they have a fondness for what they sometimes call first principles thinking. Um, I think what that means is not reading social science. Um, <laughs> and I'm like, I'm, I'm into reading social science. Um, and I'm into a kind of debate as the best way to surface truths in economics and sociology. I think both, like people who are trying to sense make or people who are trying to be rationalists also. This also kind of means not reading social science um, or humanities. Yeah, with like effective altruists and the fact that they don't read any of welfare economics. Yeah. Despite the fact that it's like the most relevant field for their, you know, what are we optimizing for? Yeah, so I, th- I think it's actually very tricky. Like I, I, I respect that the sense maker people are trying to understand a very complicated time in, in history, the the crises that are going on and so on and so forth but I think that the way to understand it is to familiarize yourself with a lot of theories and see which which ones have which kind of explanatory power and that's something that they generally don't do Mm. yeah Um, it's because they're they just like being very meta and like being very meta is is good like I I like that too because it gives you like a very good framework from which you can like see reality and like everything kind of like falls into places it's very satisfactory um, however, the problem is that you, at some point, you have to have a point, right? Like you have to like yeah. get down from your like meta cloud if you ha- want to have like any like relevant impacting culture. And I think the reason that's why they don't read social science because like social science is not about like a meta theory; it's actually a theory, right? Um, I've talked about that with with some of them, which are also my friends. Sure. Um, and then the other thing, uh, right? And then the other thing. Yeah, it, sure. Um, Another thing that I could say is uh, they tend not to be very generative. Like I work with designers. I work with people that are trying to make meaningful things, like concrete meaningful things. Like sometimes at big companies like Facebook or Twitter, trying to make a meaningful thing there. Sometimes it's startups. Sometimes people that are just trying to make a meaningful event. Um, and so I, I learn, I, and I, uh, philosophically I'm a pragmatist, right? Charles Taylor's a pragmatist. Like, I think this is the only way we can figure stuff out is by trying, iterating, seeing what works. And you end up with very different terminology and very different methods if you do that than this first principles thinking. Yeah. It's, it's kind of like, yeah, still mostly like, I mean, the word says itself, like it's sense making, it's kind of like what happened. But now I feel like we're over that conversation. Mm. Like most of us are on the same page, right? Mm. And so like, okay, what are you going to do about it? Right? And that's where it just feels like very poor and like very like non-generative. I feel like, you know, what they did really well was at the beginning, they provided a frame that no one else had. And they had these like beautiful concepts. It was just, like you know, like inside porn. It just felt so good, right? Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. But I feel like once you've got them, like you've got them and you've got to do something with it. I think that's fair. I think that's fair. I mean, I do think that a lot of those people did an, a kind of impre- a really impressive job of of basically encouraging and inspiring uh, a lot of people to start thinking in a new way and, and also start talking with each other and coming to all kinds of meetups online and offline. And it, it was really, and I guess still is, pretty remarkable and impressive in terms of how much thinking they got going and were able to generate and coordinate 
but but I think your your points are fair that it, it it does seem like okay you can you can only do that so much right they can only have so many like discussion circles and you know like thinking thinking parties right like you do want it to cash out in some way and into something whether yeah. it's tools or 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 what have you or movements or with with a more purposeful edge and actually while we're at it I mean Ellie before you were saying you were basically kind of rejecting liberalism on the one hand and utilitarianism on the other hand. And, you know, I think there's probably a lot of people watching or listening and uh, probably thinking like, yeah, you know, this, this chick from Barcelona, what is she like? She must be a trad, a trad cath, um, you know, reactionary. um, But, but I don't think you are. So, so um, if, if you're not into liberalism and you're not into utilitarianism, what are the limit? Are you, are you a, are you a reactionary or where do you part ways with that? Um, yeah, no, so, I mean, okay, reactionary, you know, the funny thing about it is, like, they're actually right, like, they're, you know, the problem that they're looking at, like, I buy it, like, it's true, you know, like, liberalism has actually failed, it has failed us, however, you know, very overwhelmingly, like, they just don't really have another good solution, like, their return is not it, and it, it, not only because it's just, like, not viable, it's just because it's not even a good idea either, so, you're not, you're, you're not going to be re- <laughs> returning. <laughs> no, even then, like, hey, like, if you like it for the aesthetics, like, I can play with it, you know, it's, yeah. a, bit, it's a bit fun, but, like, like, something better, so, um, yeah, like, what I hear there, like, what I hear in their critique is that there was something beautiful that we had before, I call it virtue, call it meaning, um, you know, values that has been lost, right, and fair enough, it has, in, in some way, or it has, more than lost, it has been, like, diluted, right, it has been confused and you know decay through institutional decay and like turned into like preferences and these like very shallow metrics um and i'm like yeah i i hear you and like however what i disagree is that they think that these like virtue these meaning um beauty like whatever values are like a very fixed thing and not only it's fixed but it always expresses in the same way right so being a good person it's not like your idea of good but it's kind of you know if you're a woman it means that you you know you need to be weak me you you know mm-hmm. not have a career like whatever and i'm not either going on the other like you know liberalist side like you know full-on relativism and, you know it gets very nihilistic and no um it's not about like you can do whatever the fuck you want but rather is like try to kind of like find a thing that really is meaningful to you like what is virtue like what is good where is meaning according to you and then build on that so it's not kind of like your first impulse mm-hmm. like that what you know liberalism would say like you know what whatever right. goes goes right. but rather that kind of like yeah, a bit more, you know, reflective version of yourself. But once you have that, you know, meaning is actually like plural. So you can have many different worlds and they cohere around, you know, their shared sense of that meaning, whatever that means is the important thing. Yeah, I think I, I kind of expect, I think that the right in general, not just the, the trad people, but um, all of the right wing, I think has, uh, and, and has, and conservatives in general, have had for <clears throat> decades a really strong critique, which is that there is uh, there's a a multi level structure of practices that kind of make a good society. It's like a rich structure of, and in the West this was often like church groups and families and families that have you know a father and a mother mm-hmm. and some kids mm-hmm. and. Um, uh, the Bible and so on and and uh, Bible reading groups and all this stuff and I think it's it's true what's true is that there is a very rich structure there that kind of all needs to be in place 
mm. um, for people to have good lives. Mm-hmm. And what's not true is that that's not the only structure like that. Mm-hmm. Like there's there's many structures like that. Mm-hmm. But uh, but again, what's true is that markets uh, don't really support these kinds of rich structure, multi-level structures, right? If everybody is making individual choices um, all the time and choosing from this marketplace of ideas, what you end up with is is like class pass. You end up with, a, you know, you, you go to one yoga teacher one week and another another week and you never have these kind of, right. uh, you know, rich structures. So we need to change something so that we can have these rich structures of practices and meaning. Right. But hopefully not, that doesn't mean all going back to church. <laughs> okay, so you, you will not be returning either. <laughs> Basically, neither of you are, are, are uh, tradcath reactionaries, but you're also not, you know, telling them they can't have their thing. Yeah. Right. right. Uh, yeah, totally, no, in fact, yeah. I want them to be able to have their thing. And I think that it's true that current liberal market structures don't really support that kind of thing. Right. Yeah. I also wanted to add that it's not just the return or right-wing people that are, you know, trying to, like, get away from liberalism. Like, the left mm-hmm. is very much trying, whether it's in, like, social justice or environmentalism. Totally. So, um, and everyone is kind of, like, trying to, like, grasp at, like, what their idea of virtue is. But what I, where we disagree with them is, like, yeah, virtue is important, but it's, like, not this kind of, like, monolithic thing right. that everyone needs to go. It's, again, like, the same critique in effective altruism, right? right? Like, there is never one thing. It just, like, collapses all of the reality into this, like, very simple thing. And nothing good ever comes out of that, right? Um, so. Well, I think I think that's uh, as good a final message as any. I hate to be so brief, but you know we are doing this on a whim, so I think uh, that seems like a natural stopping point. Mm-hmm. Uh, you should tell people where they can find you. For anyone listening or watching who uh, were really enjoying what you're saying and they want to follow up or connect with you, where can people? I know you both are up to uh, much bigger projects um, that you're still you're still uh, unfolding in the world. So yeah. where can people follow along and, and get involved or get in touch with you? Sure, I'm on Twitter as Edelwax E D E L W A X. And uh, I also have a school that teaches people to make these like meaning oriented uh, social structures. And that's called the School for Social Design, SFSD.io. I'll put links in the show notes for anyone who wants to check it out. And you, Ellie? Yeah. So we were like not publicly launched yet. Uh, That will be soon, hopefully. Uh, So in the meantime, um, you can follow me on Twitter at Ellie, uh, yeah, lower bar, lower bar, Hine. And yeah, I guess that's it. We'll be keeping you posted there. Yeah, well, thanks so much for coming through. I'm glad we were able to find some time. I mean, we, yeah. we just met last night at the party, so I'm <laughs> glad we, and you're leaving in two days, so I'm glad that we were able to find a time that we could squeeze in. I do apologize, I have to be brief and, and run off, but um, other responsibilities beckon, unfortunately. This was a pleasure. Thank you so much. <laughs> yeah, thank you so much. It was fun. Cool. That's a wrap. Hey, thank you so much for listening to the podcast. You made it all the way to the very end, so you must really like the show. In that case, I would be super grateful if you'd be so kind to leave a review on Apple Podcasts. All you have to do is go to otherlife.co slash review. That's otherlife.co forward slash review, and it'll send you an Apple Podcasts. Just leave a review. You can be honest. Tell me what you really think. I'd really appreciate it because it'll help other people find the show and I'm really trying to grow out the podcast. So thanks for listening and thank you for leaving a review. I really appreciate it.